thanks for joining us, everybody. My name is Bonnie Sugiyama, and I'm the director of the Pride Center and the Gender Equity Center. Thank you so much for joining us uh, on this special APIDA podcast uh, around the COVID virus. Um, we're going to do a series of these events, um, and we're going to start off with talking about some history. So we have some special guests with us, and we'll let uh, everybody introduce themselves. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm Hindo. I'm a professor of sociology um, and also the coordinator of Asian American Studies at San Jose State University. Hi, and I'm Joanne Rondilia, and I'm an assistant professor in sociology, and I teach in Asian American Studies. Great. And uh, my name is Chris. I'm the director of the Mosaic Cross Cultural Center at San Jose State, and um, uh, I'm going to be joining Bonnie on this uh, podcast adventure for the next few podcasts as we uh, record a couple um, podcasts for a special series for the um, APIDA Heritage Month. So we'd like to start out with this cast with talking about uh, historical inequities that have um, kind of prevailed throughout the history of America, disproportionately impacting Asian Americans. And so... Uh, Either one of you, Joanne or Hian, if you want to, do you want to talk about uh, some of the things that, that you uh, kind of teach in your classes to help people understand where these historical inequities have come from? Yeah, I would love to start. So one of the things that I think um, I begin my classes with is this idea of um, the founding of our, of our nation. So when we founded our nation, um, it was pretty much based on certain circumstances and then as we expanded the nation, right, um, there are more and more people coming in. So one of the ways that this has created a lot of tension is this sort of tension between what we call democracy and liberty, right? And or, in other words, how do we construct our society? And the way that they have thought about it is, for example, to um, regulate certain types of people, allow certain types of people to come in, um, allow for certain types of people to receive citizenship, um, and all the wonderful things that comes with being a citizen, and then simultaneously exclude people from doing that. So if you think about our community, the Asian American, the APIDA community, one of the ways that we have been coming to the United States is primarily as a force of labor, right? So for example, when you think about the Chinese um, who first came to the United States in, 18, in the 1840s, um, they were brought in primarily as laborers. But soon after they came in, due to a lot of competitions and discrimination and racism, um, we passed the 1882 Exclusion Act. And then we still needed some more labor. And the labor that we needed now was replaced with the Japanese, right? So the Japanese were brought in. They worked for a while. They were able to um, sort of participate a little bit in our society. Um, the first generation, the Issei, were not allowed to become U.S. citizens. They were aliens ineligible for citizenship. Um, and so you have laws, both in California and nationally, that also did not allow them to, of course, become citizens. And you've pushed the clock forward to 1940s, with World War II. And again, as soon as Pearl Harbor happens on December 7th, 1941, Japanese Americans, um, 120,000, were put in concentration camps, right? So what you see is this pattern repeating. You see the pattern repeating with Filipino Americans. Um, in terms of the relationship with the United States, and Professor Rondillo can talk a little bit more about this if she likes. Um, and then you have it with other groups, with Koreans, with um, the South, South Asians, and then, of course, in post-1965, you have more recent immigrants coming in, and that's another group that we can talk about. Um, yes, so um, thank you, Hen, for that. That was an excellent uh, synopsis there. I think what's important for people to understand is that when we're looking at... Um, particularly Asian migration into the United States, you know, a lot of this has to do with uh, the demand for labor, right? And so I think what we often forget is that, you know, um, especially when we're looking um, after World War II, right? Um, Asians start immigrating because they see, you know, like we, we start to immigrate into the United States and we settle, but as a country, the country still sees us not just as laborers, but disposable labor, right? So, and this is why when we look at today, you know, especially with respect to like anti-Asian violence that's happening in the midst of uh, COVID-19, a lot of this has to do with, 
historically, people in the country have seen Asians and Asian Americans as disposable people. Like we were never part of the fabric of the United States. We were um, historically seen as disposable people, disposable labor. And so when you have um, incidents like this, this is why, and, and you know, the, when we have these incidents like this, like this is why um, people so readily, um, you know, like enact violence towards Asians and Asian Americans. And it's because, you know, historically the country has treated us as, you know, like this, this, this disposable, um, I guess, supply of laborers versus when we come, right. When our parents come, you know, into the United States, you know, like, cause I think about my own parents who immigrated here really to be a part of the fabric of the United States, you know, so much so that like my, um, my dad in particular, um, you know, didn't teach us the language. He was very much like, you are an American, you know, like, especially cause my siblings and I were born in the United States. So like he really drilled that into us, but what he didn't understand was that Though he saw himself as an American, the country does not see would not see him as an American. And again, this is uh, this is why um, you know we see such violence enacted so readily towards Asian Americans. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, John, for providing that context. Um, I think uh, you know it would be great for us to to go a little bit deeper in some of this stuff um, and talk about kind of. Um, uh, what it means, particularly, you know, when we take the last um, few decades all into kind of a broad context, what it means ultimately that that um, APIDA or Asian Pacific Islander Desi folks have um, continually been considered disposable and ultimately, you know, in these times of stress or fear get used as scapegoats. Um, and I was hoping that, that one of you could talk a little bit about this broader kind of context of being kind of scapegoated um, at times in which, you know, um, uh, this country has felt some overwhelming sense of fear or stress. Okay. So, um, so this idea of scapegoats, I think uh, part of the reason why Asians and Asian Americans are seen as disposable and, and also like as scapegoats in these times, especially like in tough economic times like this is because Again, we're not seen as part of the fabric <clears throat> of the country. We're often seen as the perpetual foreigner or <clears throat> the forever foreigner. The other thing that uh, we have to consider is uh, the way many of us immigrated. Um, you know, like we immigrated as laborers, right? And like when we immigrated as laborers, we were seen as just filling in time until the country uh, could move on, right? Um, because, and Ron Takaki talks about this in his work, you know, what it is to be a sojourner, you know, someone who just comes here, works, earns money and leaves versus being a settler. Um, you know, the, you know, in this, in this imagination of what America could be, you know, there was never the vision of the Asian or uh, of the Asian person staying and settling, even though we have done this for, you know, um, you know, for hundreds of years, right? Like we've, you know, we've immigrated, we've, we've settled, but still like we, because I think part of it has to do with like the immigration pattern of us coming here as laborers, we were seen as disposable, we were seen as temporary. And so, um, you know, uh, yeah, I think I'll stop there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I had a, like a Joe Biden moment right there. <laughs> oh. So if I, if I, can go ahead and contribute to part of that. I think it's true that for the most part, right, that we were brought in as laborers. But I think there's also an important point that we need to make in terms of policies. Because one of the things that happened with the Cold War was that we were trying to become the um, country that we wanted other countries to follow. And so we faced this competition, right, with sort of this, this, this two conflicting notions of who do we follow? the communist so-called countries versus the democratic so open capitalist countries. And so what we decided to do was to, in order to sort of put racial inequality or at least perceptionally at, at rest, we decided to put, to pass the 1965 Immigration Act, right? 
which then sort of changed the way in which um, immigration occurred. As a result of that, we were trying to showcase that, no, we're not a racist country that we once were, and now we're opening the country for other people. However, ever since 1965, the way that the government has seen this, or the, 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 um, the lawmakers, is that it was the wrong people that came in. The people that came in included mostly people from Asia, right, using the seven different preferences of that Immigration Act, and also from Mexico. And so what happens over time is that we became what Richard Rodriguez called the browning of America. And in many ways, America, I think as Joanne talked about, was not willing to, was not able, nor did it want to allow us to incorporate into the United States. In other words, if you are going to allow people to become part of your society, the easiest thing to do is to allow people to become citizens, right? And to allow people to intermarry. Um, so we have we had anti-miscegenation laws that didn't allow people to marry, marry between races. We have laws that didn't allow people to get become citizens. Now, the other sort of conflict that I think Joanne talked about is for the second generation, they have always thought of themselves as Americans and grew up as Americans. And yet they were not treated as such, right? So again, this is conflict about democracy and about liberty, about what it means to be an American. And so a lot of the conflict that you see is because of how sort of um, imagination-wise we saw ourselves. And we saw ourselves as this white nation, not necessarily um, as a nation that allowed black and brown and yellow and red folks to be part of us. So one of the things that... um that you all talked about um, when we kind of had our pre-chat discussion about this cast was um, the timing of when these laws tended to come up. Do you want to, do you want to talk about some of the timing of that? Um, sure. I, I can take that on. So when we look at the timing of some of these laws, it's usually connected to um, economic downturn. It's the government responding to um, economic anxieties. So again, like when we're looking at, you know, the violence today, a lot of that is not, it's not people fearing that they're going to contract the virus from Asian people. Because again, like that, like, the math just doesn't make sense. So it's like, I'm walking down the street, you think I'm diseased. So therefore, you beat the shit out of me because you're afraid I'm going to give you the virus. If you had logic sense, you just wouldn't touch me, right? So the violence that's enacted among people, you know, like, you know, onto people has nothing to, at least to me, it doesn't really have as much to do about the fear of contracting the virus as it does to, you know, responding to, um, you know, like a, a bad economic situation, right? Um, you know, especially this year in 2020 uh, and, and last year, 2019, there's been a lot of conversations about automation and the way that automation is changing the workforce. Uh, you know, because uh, it's an election year, there's been a lot of talk about this, the way in which work has changed and is going to change because of automation. And then you put the coronavirus on top of that. It's like, you know, what the virus did was it built on people's anxieties about economic instability. And then so what the virus did was it's like it's, it kind of exploded that dynamic. And suddenly, again, the nation needs to find uh, scapegoats, people to blame for this. And so, you know, as history dictates, they would put the blame on Asian, Asian Americans. They would enact violence onto Asian people as a response to uh, these economic um, unstable times. So if I can add to that, I think that Joanne is right in the sense that if you look at the pattern of the boom and bust cycles, that there tends to be times when the economy you know, takes a downturn in a, in a capitalistic model, that there is a lot more anxiety and a lot more attacks on um, communities of color. What's different about this, though, is that it's not an economic crisis. It became an economic crisis very quickly. So what you do see, though, is that underlying all of this, right, is this um, anxiety, this stereotypes, this image that we have of Asian American or Asian Pacific American folks as being the forever foreigner. So it's like it it got accel accelerated. 
And it also gets accelerated to add to Joanne's point when the president of the United States of America decided, right, that he was going to blame this virus on China, right, and call it the Chinese virus, despite all the objections that people have, because it's not a Chinese virus. So what you do see is uh, this, this, this exaggerated um, anxiety, because now when you look at all the bad news about the economy and all the losses that, that has been taken on, um, on Wall Street and the fact that people are losing their jobs, not because of any economic reasons, but because of this virus that shut down everything, then people are a lot more anxious. So you begin to have all of these sort of like the perfect storm coming together. And you see this playing itself out. So how do I do this? Well, I lash out. If, but I can't lash out at certain people because there are laws that there might be prohibiting them. But right, just like the way that I lash out against um, Chinese people in, in the early days of the um, railroad, um, now I can lash out at Chinese people because the president say it's a Chinese virus. So I can have this direct correlation. Right? If we had better leadership, and if we had people who understand this a lot more, then we wouldn't have this. So, for example, when we had the Ebola crisis, we didn't see a spike in the attacks toward Africans or African-Americans, right? Because the leadership didn't allow that to happen. In this case, though, there are all these things that are coming together. And again, at the very, sort of, at the very scratch the surface barely, and you see all these violence tendencies. Now, another way to think about America is that we have had always had a history of violence. We have used violence to control communities of color, right? And that tends to be the case at all, I mean, at all times. So this is just another example of all of these factors coming in together. Um, and the fact that the, other, the final point, I think in some ways, is that we also have this stereotype that Asian Americans tend to be quiet. It's not true historically, but that's a stereotype that we have, right? And so people feel somewhat much more um, emboldened, if you will, to try to do these acts of violence that Joanne talked about. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Um, I, I wanted to return to this idea of um, the the rhetoric that's being used um, by uh, those in power, by the president, by the federal government um, around this and, and kind of um, bring this around to this idea of like, where where um, where we are as a nation in terms of um, uh, trying to name these things and and give um, a certain kind of uh, power towards this naming, um, and and one of the things that kind of comes to mind um, is is that um, that even though this is happening right now um, in in um, March, April of 2020. Um, this is something that Trump has primed the country for during his entire time as a president. This is something that uh, the federal government has primed the country for during this entire period. Um, and that there, there has consistently been rhetoric that has been kind of laid into the foundation in the last few years of casting China in, um, and subsequently um, Asian folks in this role of the enemy, right, or the opposition, um, and that it, it goes more towards this idea of like, you know, or emboldening this idea that you two brought up around being the perpetual foreigner. Um, and I think um, I was I was hoping that maybe we can um, uh, kind of touch on some of the points of um, how even when we are trying to seek acceptance or seek power or seek a foothold um, in this country in terms of um, being treated as something other than a foreigner, um, it's still done in a way that, that, um, that uh, isolates Asian Americans. Right. And, and I'm thinking specifically of like minority model minority myths. Right. Um, and how that kind of comes back around again. Um, and I was, I was um, wondering if um, uh, you wanted to touch on a little bit of like how the model minority myth has kind of impacted our communities, um, both in the past and in the current day. Okay, so one of the things that I think is uh, is unique about the way that um, you know that that Trump has been able to rally his troops 
is that he has he has tended to um, use this divisive um, notion of um, and anxiety notions that a lot of people have, right? So one way to do that is to point the blame, as as you mentioned in in the case of China, um, and I think for the for the most part, what we are seeing in terms of the American sort of public is that despite the fact that it seems as if on the surface um, a lot of people are doing well economically that most of us are very close to just one paycheck away from being homeless. Nevertheless, right, mm-hmm. uh, the fact that he's able to make it so that it feels as if the reason why we have not succeeded is because of other people allows for him to use that as a way to rally his troop, especially in this year, that's an election year. Um, and China, because it has grown so much economically, tends to be this big bad wolf, right? that is easy to point to. Um, alongside with that, the, the model minority myth that I think happens is that a lot of us who have done well um, make it so that it seems as if we have done it um, in spite of um, the racism and discrimination that has taken place. Right. So one of the, the myth that is created is that a lot of us are really, really well educated. A lot of us are doing very, very well economically. A lot of us are taking taking positions that other um, people should have. So in terms of college admissions, right? The fact that there are so many Asian Americans going to college and universities, um, you know, in the high tech industry, the fact that there are so many engineers and so on and so forth. And one of the things that's missing in all this is the notion that the 1965 Immigration Act recruited the best and the brightest, right, from those countries to immigrate. So, for example, the people who came from the Philippines, a lot of them were doctors and nurses that we needed. A lot of the people who came from South Asia till today are these amazing engineers, right? The people who came from from Korea are these engineers. Even the Southeast Asian refugees, especially the Vietnamese, the first group of refugees that came were highly educated. They were the cream of the crop of their country. And therefore, they would seem seemingly do well in our country, right? And so if you are somebody who's losing your job because your company decided to automate, as Joanne suggested earlier, or your company decides to move its, its, its plant elsewhere and you lose your job, right? Who do you blame? So Trump allows them to blame people like the Chinese, right? But a lot of Americans can't differentiate between Chinese and Chinese Americans or Chinese and Asian Americans. And this goes back to the 1980s when we had Vincent Chin in 1982 who was killed simply because of the fact that he was Chinese, that he was in Detroit, that he represented this model minority, and that these two unemployed um, you know, auto workers took it out on him. right? And you see this. So this violence that we see... Um, continues to occur, it's not at the same rate or it's not covered in the in the same way that the, the media covers other crimes. But if you look at, if you were to plot this, right, and Russell Jung at San Francisco State is doing this, there are a lot more hate crimes perpetrated against Asian Pacific Americans um, than you imagine would be possible, right? And yet we don't think of them as um, hate crimes. So... That's, I think that's what, what, what this rhetoric. So words do matter. Actions matter even more. And the fact that we have this administration or the laws or the people in positions of power that are so easily sort of like pointing fingers at certain groups of people make it so that the American public um, feels like, oh, yeah, of course we can blame those folks, right? Because in their minds, it becomes a zero-sum game. Um, if I lose, it's because you won, right? As opposed to thinking about sort of a different types of uh, analysis. Yeah, <clears throat> I think also with the model minority, and you know, like uh, a lot of us know this, right? Like, it's it's such a narrow-minded stereotype that does not reflect like the richness of the Apita community. So, for example, in this episode, we're talking sort of broadly about the Apita community, but like when you break it down, you know, so for example, Pacific Islanders, um, I'm not saying that they're not part of this conversation, but the violence isn't necessarily directed, this type of violence isn't necessarily directed towards Pacific Islanders, for example. I think that Pacific Islanders 
uh, experience like a different type of violence. So I, I, I just kind of wanted to mention that. But yeah, when you understand all Asians as the model minority, again, like I think it's part of that scapegoating tactic, right? Because, you know, with respect to automation, there's a lot of frustration, especially like, uh, you know, in the in the Midwest where so many people lost their jobs and they're experiencing like decades long, like depression. And so the, you know, Asians become the people uh, to blame because we seem to be more successful, but no one is looking at, you know, the capitalist systems that actually led to, you know, led to these communities becoming uh, poor, it, that led to these people losing their jobs, right? So again, like, um, you know, I think the model minority, that stereotype becomes a scapegoat for um, the system of capitalism, for the U.S. government to not confront the ways in which it has really wronged the American public, right? And this is why for the work that Han and I do, you know, which is like we teach Asian American studies, we teach Asian American history because it's important to understand the context in which things happen, right? You know, because like when you don't understand the context in which things happen, what ends up, you know, what you get is, oh, we're in this situation because China does this or Asians do this. And it's, you know, and for me, it's like we aren't responsible for this. Like you need to look at the larger you know, the larger institutions, the larger systems that made it, that that caused economic instability, right? You know, so um, I'm glad that uh, you brought up Vincent Chin, you know, because, you know, um, when we're looking at, you know, what happened in the Vincent Chin murder, the reason why that case is so central is because, one, it reminded, you know, it, it reminds us that historically the reason why violence is enacted upon Asian people and on the Asian body is because historically white people have been able to enact that violence with no, um, with no punishment, right? Evans, you know, what was his fine? Like $3,000? Vincent Chin was a person, right? He was a man who was going to get married, right? Sorry, I, I get so like, I get very frustrated when, um, you know, like when we, uh, you know, about that case, because like it's, you know, Bonnie, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, your fears that we're going to see more Vincent Chin cases and, you know, like the, the, the development of automation, which, you know, benefits the very wealthy is going to, you know, like it's going to trickle down to the everyday person. So like, Bonnie, your uh, your concern is very much um, it's it's warranted, you know, because when there is economic instability, right? When there's economic instability, like people are not equipped with the knowledge to understand why that economic instability happens, and when people don't understand that context, they direct their anger and rage in ways that historically has hurt as well as annihilated Asians in the United States. And this is why we have to be very vigilant about, you know, like understanding history, understanding, you know, like the concrete reasons why Donald Trump is very deliberate about using language such as, you know, the Chinese virus. He's trying to redirect, as, as well as other people, you know, on the Hill, they're trying to redirect the reason why people feel economic anxiety. It's not because Asians are taking over. It's because historically in the past, what, three, four decades, the government has been very inadequate in ensuring that um, everyday American lives are treated well, right? It's, you know, and so like, I, for me, at least there's this fear of like all of this sort of coming to a head. And, you know, that's sort of what the virus did is it like, it exacerbated that. The context that you two bring up um, in terms of kind of the scope of this is really important. And, um, you know, I really appreciate that we're able to kind of talk about um, all of these different points because um, 
the uh, um, what was brought up, uh, particularly in terms of like the Vincent Chin thing, is that and and you know I think Joanne, you really touched on this uh, a lot, is that um, it is it is redirecting um, and and shifting blame and shifting um, the uh, the target in terms of um, where we should be. Um, our focus should be right. So um, I think one of the things that this has really kind of illuminated uh, during this period um, of the coronavirus and, and pandemic um, is that not only it, is our federal government immediately not capable of um, of doing um, of doing uh, proper response, um, but that also um, that. Uh, like Ken, you brought up, we have historically kept um, uh, a certain class of people oppressed to the point where we have such a wide scope of people in this country who are one paycheck away from um, uh, having their, their lives upended. Um, and it is ultimately the, the extremely wealthy and the extremely powerful who benefit from this kind of fighting and conflict. Um, and I was hoping... Um, I was hoping that we could, um, one of the things that we kind of talked about, uh, when we were doing the pre-meeting too, was we touched upon, um, uh, kind of, um, uh, and, and we used Andrew Yang as kind of the example of this, but we kind of touched upon, um, people who, who might not fully realize, um, how this, this, um, the uh, the onus has been shifted, right? When we talk, when we use this language, um, so I was hoping we could we could touch a little bit on that and how you know, uh, particularly Andrew Yang's recent comments, um, but also you know, like minded folks who are you know well meaning but um, might have kind of missed the point. So one of the interesting things that Andrew Yang brought out, and I think he's not the only one, I assume. Um, is that I think it brings out sort of the complexities of our communities in the sense that we have had, we have people who have been here for generations and then we have more recent arrivals. And one of the things that occurs is that the more recent arrivals tended to be much more, much less of the working class folks and much more of the professional class. Um, and therefore their children um, go on to college and universities and get degree, degrees and, and do well in, in the society for the most part. Um, and because of that, there is this kind of, um, the stereotype that we talked about, the model minority, right? So as a result of that, um, it reinforces this notion of what the American ideal society is, which is that it allows uh, for people to come here with nothing but the shirt on their backs and do well. Um, the problem with that myth, though, in many ways, is that a lot of people don't actually know um, the history of this. And because they have become successful, they imagine that a lot of the racism discrimination that we have faced in the past is no longer, um, at least is not as severe as it is today. Um, But I think what Joanne is pointing to is that this is not necessarily the case for the fact that at any given moment, right, um, this anything could um, reignite this and make it much worse. Um, And so part of what we see is this idea that some of us believe that, no, we are immune to this. um, And only if we become more of the, quote, American, um, as American as, as, you know, apple pie, then then we'll we'll be accepted as Americans. Um, And what I try to tell people is, you know, you might try as much as you can, and you sometimes there will be that reception. But for the most part, um, given how well the, the media and how connected people are in terms of believing in stereotypes, um, that we will not be seen as Americans um, to the extent that Andrew Yang wanted us to become much more Americans, right? The Japanese Americans tried to do this during World War II as a response to the coming of them being put in concentration camp. That didn't help. Muslims Americans after 9-11, right, are as American as American could be, and yet they were also targeted for uh, hate crimes. Um, you know, so, so what you do see is that we tend to be um, 
highly influenced by stereotypes, by the lack of education, and even those who are educated in some ways use this divide and conquer notions so that um, it's easier to control the mass, right? So if you have all of us united and thinking, no, it is not because of my sisters or my brothers that I am in the circumstances and I would stand in solidarity with them, um, it's much harder to control all of us as opposed to saying, no, it's because of those Japanese, it's because of those Muslims, it's because of those Latinos that you folks are you know, losing your jobs or your paycheck away from whatever it is that you're away from. Okay. Um, so like I said, I am Yang Gang, but <laughs> but I did I, I do have a, a lot of problems with what he said in his op-ed. But um, you know, like I don't think Andrew Yang is ne- is necessarily like I don't think he has ill intentions with what he said. I think he just doesn't know what he doesn't know, you know. Mm-hmm. And so what his op what his op-ed really tells us is, you know, it tells us about who he is, right? You know, both his parents went to UC Berkeley. They have graduate degrees. You know, he was raised in um, like upstate New York. So very like not just middle class, but like upper middle class, right? Um you know, so what that op-ed really tells us is like, it tells us something about his class background. And as someone who like watched his campaign really closely, like he does have a really strong sense of like class dynamic. My, the problem I've always had with him was that he doesn't couple that with this deep, profound sense of like a racial dynamic and how, you know, like those things intersect, right? Because if, you know, and, and, for me, it's disappointing because for someone who's like the data guy, it's like you don't know history, right? No amount of Americanness is going to save any Asian from any violence that's going to come our way, right? And how do we know this? We know this because history tells us that's the data, right? And um, so that's why his his op-ed was very disappointing was because, you know, um, it's because out of all the data sets that he could possibly, you know, explore, you know, the ethnic studies data set is something that he just knows nothing about, right? And the op-ed clearly showed that. And again, like, I think this is why, um, you know, having, you know, having that knowledge, that historical knowledge uh, becomes very important. Um, because like he, you know, like when I think about Andrew Yang and, you know, like this, this need to be seen as an American or this like, you know, trying to like put this call to become American. Again, I'm, I'm very much reminded of my dad who, you know, I think deep down inside my dad understood that he would never be seen as American, but my dad felt that if he did everything he could to be American and he did everything he could for his children to be American, that that would be enough. Right. But what they both lack is is that historical knowledge, the fact that no amount of Americanness is going to save you when you have a president basically putting a bounty on your community's head. Right. In a way, it's kind of like this racial awakening that that people have like you like you can identify as Asian and be Asian, but but also think that you're like, you know, you're totally American and you're like you know, third, fourth generation, fifth generation for some, and, and you kind of go about your business and not really realize how people see you until you start seeing it enacted in different ways. And like, I think, you know, probably for some of our students, this is, this is the first time that they're experiencing, this is their 9-11, this is their Vincent Vincent Chin, like, um, racial awakening to how, like historically how this has played out over time and how it's currently playing out and going to play out in the future. Um, so what are some things that that we can do to kind of actively engage um, a, as people to help, um, to help mitigate some of this damage, to help support our communities going forward um, and to help create some of those connections that will help us uh, into the future as we're trying to combat some of these things that, that we know are um, historical um, and about to come down um, because we know that there's that this isn't over yet. This is just the beginning. Um, as you all said, this has kind of been set up over the past few years of kind of, you know, as initially as Trump's trade war is now playing out with, with the virus and, and more so now at home with the way that he's framing it. Um, 
what what are things that 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 we can do um, as individuals and as 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 an SJSU campus? Um, I wanted to go back to something that Joanne said, which which I think is really important, um, is this notion of intersectionality, right? Because I think that that's one way that we can really engage our students to think about all the different ways in which different groups intersect, and that ultimately um, that those intersectionalities are the ways in, that we can um, build coalition, that we can support another one another. So for example, be politically engaged, right? Um, understand that a lot of these things that is happening is deliberately being conducted to divide us so that we are no longer able to think as a collective. So the idea of you know knowing your history, knowing yourself, um, and knowing not just your own kind of community history, but also the history of other communities and the struggles that other communities have gone through and the similarities, right? So for example, if you think about the African-American community, the Latinx community, Native Americans, the LGBT, you know, LGBTQT, all those communities that we can think about, all those sort of like the communities that have been on the fringes, that have been um, minority groups and how they struggle for this. If we understand that and we understand also one group that we can easily build coalition with is the environmental movement with the young people, right? Because the young people, I think, care a lot about this. So all of these things are intersecting. And this is the moment where I think that with education, with knowledge, with history, that we can actually transform all of ourselves and build this coalition that we have done kind of partially throughout history. But this might actually be the time to do this. Um, Voting and getting a new administration, but not just to stop there, right? Because voting is only the first step, right? Then you have to be engaged continuously um, for the rest of your life, basically, because our communities are all at stake, right? It, I mean, you can tell, right? I mean, we had Obama for eight years, and as soon as Obama is gone, right, Trump comes in and he destroyed everything possible. He has created so many wedges that people don't think of themselves as this, like, you know, entity of make, what makes us Americans, Um so to me, that's one way we could support our students um, and, and, and to think of the fragility of ourselves, right? I mean, this virus shut us down completely. I mean, if nothing else, you know, this is amazing to give us time to reflect on what it is that's really important um, to all of our communities and to ourselves and how it is that we can become much more engaged when we return um, and not make it like a normal return but a different type of return. I definitely agree with you, Han. I think that uh, political engagement is important and it could be as simple as voting. Um, I agree with you in that voting is not enough. Um, my, my wish for students is that they find an issue that they care deeply about, right? Whether it be you know environmental issues, which Han, you, you mentioned, whether it be... Um, you know, uh, you know, combating violence against uh, your respective communities, like find, you know, find those core issues that you care deeply about and learn about them and figure out what you can do um, either on your own or like within your community to make that better. I think that like, at least my observation with students is that um, when they engage with politics, they see this as this very big, very daunting, very intimidating thing um, for students uh, in my class who are Asian or um, Pacific Islander. They see it as, well, I don't get into politics because that's just not what my people do. But when you look at Asian American history, our histories are full, you know, and, and really rich of political engagement, right? So when we look, uh, for example, at um you know, uh, the labor strikes that happened in the Hawaii plantations, when we look at the way that Native Hawaiians, um, you know, really fought against uh, U.S. imperialism in the islands, the way Filipinos fought against imperial imperialism in the islands, like our histories are rich with political engagement, because what our ancestors knew was that political engagement meant the survival of our people. 
And I think that if students understood that, understood like how profoundly important political engagement was, I think that my hope is that more people would actually um, participate in that. But I think students need to find what their issues are, like, you know, like what are the things that they're most passionate about? And then my advice is like, go at it slowly, because even the smallest things you do can make a difference, right? But don't be apathetic to the world around you because this is not the time, right? Especially now, right? This is not the time, um, you know? And then for people that go a little deeper, like don't be afraid to see yourselves in these positions of, um, I don't want to say positions of power, but like in these positions of profound change, right? So run for your local office, you know, um, do the, you know, volunteer with, um, you know, political organizations and campaigns that you care deeply about, right? Because that's part of that coalition building, right? You know, um, I think that like, I, I, I want to believe that people naturally, you know, want to build coalitions together. But I think like, these sort of like silly politics get in the way when you find the things that you're genuinely passionate about that's how you build your coalition right you find the people that feel the same way about these certain things and then you kind of go at it at that but you know like students you know what i would like them to understand is that this is the time because you know we don't know how much time we have Right. So this is the time to sort of get in and, and get involved. Yeah, I think some like anecdotal things, you know, adding to what, what you all are saying about the intersectionality and, and, and coalition building, you know, the, the farm labor movement was actually originally started yeah. by the Filipinos. Right. Like mm -hmm. and and uh, and the Mexican, the Chicanos joined uh, and it became like they became the, the, the leadership with within that um, eventually. But the Filipino farm workers had a huge part in like starting yeah. that and being a part of the the the, the leading force of that uh, from the very beginning. And most people don't know that. I believe there's also Japanese Americans that were involved with that mm -hmm. with that um, that labor movement as well. Um, and there's just a lot of overlap. Uh, thinking about you know some of my um, my neighbors growing up are uh, are Mexican. They're like uh, they're second generation from from Texas. And I remember, remember my friend, um, you know, she said that she didn't teach her kids like your, like your, um, your father was in, like not teaching their kids Spanish because they didn't want them to have an accent and to be made fun of. They wanted to be more Americanized. So like we do have these commonalities with other immigrant groups that we may or may not know mm -hmm. about because we're not spending time with each other and sharing our stories, um, stories growing up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So one of the things that, you know, we're talking about getting involved in the politics and, and, and running for office, you know, one of the reasons why people, you know, you're talking about uh, people maybe not seeing themselves like their their people, quote unquote, having done that in the past. But, you know, usually you can find some sort of examples of that here, but you can also see it like, well, what did people do back in their home countries? You know, you have a whole a whole country of people. Of course, people are running for office there. So, th yeah. you know, th th there is history of, of people doing that. Um, and, and if you don't see it, then why don't you, why don't you lead? You know, you mm -hmm. can't, you can lead that, you can do that. And one of the great groups in our area is called the Poly, which is um, Asian Pacific American Leadership Institute. Uh, so you can get involved with that group. They've actually helped train uh, most of the people that are uh, a PETA in elected office now have like gone through that program or been a part of that program. So I highly encourage people to to look at that they have a great civic leadership program we have many people um, from sjsu that have been a part of that program myself included uh and we have some people who are currently going through that class now uh and so if, if people are interested in wanting to get uh, connected with uh, with the poly um more than welcome to connect uh, contact me and i will connect you to them um, i think that we're about at our time today do you want to add anything chris to the end of this um, yeah, I mean, um, I also, you know, thank you, um, Joanne and Hian for, for coming in and sharing all this great knowledge. I think, you know, um, just knowing more about, um, kind of the history of this, knowing more about ourselves, knowing more about our, our own identities and our place in this country and, 
and the broader historical context is important, you know, so this is going to sound a little self-serving, but share that knowledge, you know, share this podcast, you know, pass it on, you know, like if you are a student at San Jose State and you are looking for a class to take, consider taking a class with Joanne or consider taking a class with Kian, um, you know, and, and learn a little bit more about this and kind of go in depth um, because, you know, uh, we have seen time and time again that um, this is not the first time this has happened. This will not be the last time this happens. Um, that it's important that we understand that we're part of a larger story. Yeah. So thank you, Joanne. Thank you, Ken, for your time today. Um, yeah, any final you. comments? Um, I just wanted to leave the students with one thought, which is that mm-hmm. the reason why Asian American studies exist is because of the students in the 1960s that demanded for the formation of ethnic studies. Um, So it wasn't just by accident that that happened and that as young people, you actually have a lot more power and a lot lot more influence than you think that you do have, right? So um, as Joanne and Bonnie and Chris said, be engaged, be informed um, and you know, this is your world. You should make it the way you want it to be. I definitely agree. Um, you know, students, I, I think students forget the incredible amount of power that they have. And I think that they forget the incredible, like, fight that they come from, you know. So it's like, get involved and get engaged and, like, fight the fight, you know. Um, you don't know what stuff you're made of until you actually get in there. So, you know, do it, do it now while you're young. <laughs> and answer the census, because that has a huge impact yep. on how yes. like, programs are funded and yep. and, and how and, and resources that we get as a community. It has major impact on us. So make sure you fill out your census. Yes. Yeah, your fill PSA out your census, vote. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It, take, it takes like five minutes. Yeah, it's not yeah. very long at all. Yes. Yeah. Nope. So thanks, all everybody. Right. Thank you. Thank Thank you you so much, everybody.